you can't fix things that you can't name. And it's really difficult to be able to talk about a lot of the issues that, you know, we, we discuss, like wanting our, our children to grow up in a world better than the one that we're in. Well, like, how do we expect kids to actually be able to do that unless they know what's happening in the world and the things that have happened before? And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... What up, family? It's Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher here in the Los Angeles area. This is year 18 in the classroom for me, and this here, of course, is all the above. Your home for news and analysis of all matters pertaining to our world of education. Shout out to those of you who might be tuning in for the very first time. Shout out to those of you watching on YouTube or listening through your favorite podcast streaming app. We would love to remind everybody that if you are enjoying these conversations that we're having here on All of the Above, please do take a moment to go down and, and hit that thumbs up or that five-star review or, or what have you, because that makes a big difference. We're feeling the love here at All of the Above. We love that our audience is growing and we just, you know, we just love y'all so much. Jeff, Jeff, don't we love our AOTA family, our growing AOTA family? Yes, indeed. Uh, it is a, a, a bold, beautiful, growing family, as you said. And um, honestly, one of the, the sources of great, um, great not only learning and, and sharing, but also uh, pride in my life, man. We get to connect with so many amazing people out there, educators from all over the country and heck, even people in other countries. So um, it's, yeah. a, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, man, for sure, for sure. Well, Jeff, we are here for another full episode. This is, we've only got a couple of days left of, of Black History Month. We are here already at the end of February. Jeff, February just flew by. We've only got a couple more days to get any Black history in before it gets shut down for another year, um, actually, if it ever even is allowed again. So I don't know if you have any last uh, Black History um, messages or tidbits that you'd like to put out there before they shut this joint down for the year. Uh, I would just like to remind everyone that uh, every month is Black History Month. And so um, contrary to the uh, conspiracy theories of our, uh, of our brethren and sisters on the right, um, we ain't going nowhere. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. I'll take it. I'll take it. Good stuff, Jeff. We have a super dope guest in the house today. And, you know, I know folks who listen to us uh, or watch us every week know that, you know, we've had two passing periods in a row. And part of that was because we're trying to schedule around this super dope guest and, of course, the uh, holidays and such that occurred during February. So, uh, Jeff, we are here now and our, our super dope guest is in the house. Who do we have for this episode today? Well, Manuel, we got a good one for everybody today, as usual, and I'm very excited to have on today's guest. We have none other than Liz Kleinrock. Uh, those of you out there in the socials, on the Twitters and the Instas and all of that, might recognize her uh, by her handle, which is uh, Teach and Transform. Um, but she is uh, author of a recent book, Start Here, Start Now, A Guide to Anti-Bias and Anti-Racist work in your school. Uh, so she's going to talk to us a bit about her book. She's also well known for um, a TED talk she gave about how to talk to elementary age students about difficult subjects. 
Um, really someone who's been a powerful voice on these issues uh, nationally, Manuel. I think someone that a lot of educators have looked to uh, for some guidance around um, how to navigate bringing issues around race, class, uh, gender, identity, oppression into the classroom and doing so in responsible, you know, ethical ways. Um, and especially doing so now in the context of this, you know, this right wing backlash we're experiencing um, towards our public schools. So uh, it is both timely and uh, I think a really rich, fascinating conversation we're going to have with Liz Kleinrock. So stick around, folks. You definitely don't want to miss it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right, folks, but next up on our agenda is going to be our do now. We're going to take a look at some news and headlines in the world of education. All right, stay tuned. All right, folks, it's time for today's do now. Let's take a look at some recent news and headlines in the world of education. Jeff, how are we going to do the do now today? Well, Manuel, today uh, we're going to take a little attendance. We got a roll call. We got to see who's in the building present and accounted for here today on all the above. Hey, sounds good. Sounds good. Let's see who's here. You know, that Omicron wave came through and we had a lot of quarantining. We had a lot of students out and, <laughs> you know, a lot of folks are back in the building now. And, you know, according to, I guess, every expert and every like decision maker out there, I guess the pandemic is all the way over because we're done with masks and all that stuff. So just go out there and breathe in. Let's not even go there, Jeff. Let's not even go there. Let's just keep, take a Keep your N95s, people. Man. <laughs> Locked and loaded, okay? <laughs> oh, it's man. It's like, haven't we been here before this whole, like, oh, we're good now. We're good now. Oh, wait, no, we're not. Oh, but too late. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, yes, let's take a tennis, people. Let's take a roll. <laughs> First name on today's roster for today's roll call, Jeff, is um, George. George Soros, to be exact. Hmm. George Soros. Ah, okay. This is a name I know well. This is, um, as I understand it, the single person who is responsible for everything evil in the world, right? George Soros? Yeah, there are those who would claim that, yes, there is this one, one man behind the scenes doing all this crazy lefty stuff to uh, destroy the world. I just wish there was some like historic like precedent for like these types of ideas that there's like some type of secretive, <laughs> secretive group behind the scenes secretly like ushering in a new world order um, may or may not have any ties to any particular religious faith or background. But in any case, yeah, George Soros, there are folks out there who think he's the one behind everything bad, everything, everything lefty, everything woke. And in this case, this story relates to folks trying to trying to dig in and get all the information they can from school districts to try to see if they can uncover and find those devious plots to usher in cultural Marxism and all that lefty liberal woke stuff. So Jeff, this is a really interesting and also kind of troubling, well, more than kind of troubling story that comes out of uh, Minnesota. I don't know if you are familiar with Minnesota, Jeff. It's the land of um, 10,000 lakes, I believe. Somewhere you are in the correct, sir. You yeah. are correct, intimately familiar with Minnesota, including some of the communities referenced in, uh, in this article, uh, which is, it's a little bit of a long article, I have to say, but it's fascinating. So click yeah. the link down below and definitely read, folks. 
Yeah, definitely. It's a long read, but it's a it is a fascinating read, and we're you know let's let's just dig right into it. All right, so this comes to us uh, by way of uh, some reporting by Beth Hawkins for the seventy four million, and she reports that there are anxious leaders of small school districts across Minnesota who are currently being inundated with public records requests seeking millions of documents with information on everything from their school's COVID protocols to classroom materials to names of teachers and the buildings where they work, even requests for text messages that mention race or social emotional services of any kind. Now, districts report that the cost and labor required to fulfill the requests have skyrocketed in the last six months. For example, school leaders in Rochester Public Schools warned that it would cost an estimated $900,000 to fulfill one 41-page request from the local group called Equality in Education. So, you know, we know what they're about. They're about equality, Jeff. Um, But that group is searching for materials mentioning a broad range of subjects, including critical race theory, equity, and anything with, quote, a sociological or cultural theme. Anything with those themes, Jeff. They They want those documents. They want those texts. Now, uh, typically, a Freedom of Information Act request is only um, a page or two, and this 41-page request is is a lot. Uh, so this scenario is playing out across the country as groups uh, who often are loose organizations of, of people initially angered by their school's responses to COVID-19. Uh, these groups are coalescing around topics related to race, history, the LGBTQ plus community, and anti-Semitism. Um, they are looking at how any of that stuff is taught. And in many cases, these national, or in many cases, there are national organizations that are coaching people on filing their requests. One such group is called Parents Defending Education, and it's a national nonprofit that describes itself as a group that's investigating efforts meant to, quote, impose toxic new curriculums and to force our kids into divisive identity groups based on race, ethnicity, religion, and gender. Now, uh, their own website says that they have extensive experience filing public records requests, and they ask for folks to contact them with for tips and ideas that um, they've used or that could be helpful for getting documents. And um, Jeff, man, they are calling for folks across the country to file these Freedom of Information Act requests to their school boards, to their districts, and get anything from teacher text messages to curriculums and lesson plans, of course, and anything that has any reference to race or or gender or any of this stuff, Jeff. It's, um, they're, are they going to find George Soros at the bottom of all that stuff, Jeff? Are they going <laughs> to uncover this devious plot here? Uh, you know, it, maybe it won't be George Soros. Maybe it will be uh, Hillary Clinton in the basement of a pizza shop with George Soros uh, and Barack Obama. I think that I think that's what it will be. Uh, so, of course, I'm laughing because there's a layer of this that is just so stupid. It's funny. OK. And it's important to laugh and it's important to recognize. Actually, this is extremely dangerous, okay? Uh, what we are seeing here, Manuel, from, from my estimation at least, is uh, the kind of next phase of two very important, very um, existential threat sort of things that are taking place in America right now. One is 
uh, an outright war on just the institution of public education. Okay, for many years we've seen uh, you know the escalation of that war on the kind of uh, devaluing of the teaching profession and of you know educating more generally, the expansion of you know of charter schools and the kind of market share competition you know privatization front, um, and that work continues, right? Um, but now we're seeing this uh, sort of intellectual uh, war against public education as an institution that is fundamentally, or at least should be, fundamentally grounded not only in the teaching of truth, uh, but also in what we've talked about before on the show, Manuel, it's like this sort of core values of school. And we certainly don't always live up to the core values of school, but I think we're all pretty much aware of, of like what the basics are, right? Which is like everyone belongs here. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter your gender, your race, your, you know, your language. Like you have a right to an education and the school has a responsibility to provide um, that education in a way that is actually like meaningful and accessible to you and your advancement and the service of your community, right? And that's what these folks are waging war against, uh, in, in my view, okay? The, the other piece of this here, Manuel, is really uh, a, a sort of attack against school as a bedrock institution in a democratic society. And I mean democratic with the small d, right? So, you know, we're seeing the, the abuse of, the weaponization of, uh, you know, what should be a very important uh, law, Freedom of Information Act, right, and these requests should be a very important part of ensuring transparency and, uh, you know, ethical good service uh, of government to the community it serves. Instead, what we're seeing is folks just burying the state in paperwork that's useless and dumb and not going to reveal anything of, of any substantive nature on the issues that these folks care about but is potentially gonna reveal things that could just be embarrassing, right, to the district in one, in one form uh, or another, or to individuals within the district in one form or another. So uh, this is really a, uh, you know, a sort of frontal assault on the institution um, of public school that concerns me deeply, Manuel. And, and I think there is, uh, this is bringing me back also to our earlier conversations in this movement around how we should respond to the accusations of so-called CRT being taught in schools. And I maintain we erred grievously uh, in, in this fight by saying that CRT isn't taught in schools, right? That, that it's just something that's taught in law schools or this sort of thing. Um, when the reality is critical race theory is a good idea, a good you know, framework to use to understand the world. And even though in the legal school sense, it's not necessarily being taught in, in schools for the most part in that way, the kind of uh, ripple effects of, a cr of that type of critical lens on the law is absolutely being taught in schools all over the country or certainly being taught in places where they have any kind of even basically culturally and historically responsive education um, or honest education taking place. And so this is, this is like, Instead of, uh, you know, fighting fire with fire, we were like, oh, no, no, there's no fire. We're just just back away. There is no fire. And now there's even more fire and <laughs> and and we're stuck. Right. And so I'm, I'm deeply concerned about this, Manuel. Um, 
It is, uh, you know, this is, I think the term they use in politics, I, I hope I'm getting this right, for this is like, it's astroturf, right? It is, it's not actually grassroots. This is like billionaire right-wing folks funding this made-up concern about parental rights and, you know, transparency and CRT and creating these boogeymans. But this is, this stuff is being paid for by the wealthiest, most powerful right-wing interests in this country. And uh, it's a shame that our districts are, are suffering under this right now. Yeah, that's all facts. And we love facts here on All of the Above. And if this is, it is a shame. It's definitely a shame. I really, I guess I, I there's a lot to say here. One, one thought that I have is just my concern for the folks at these small districts who are dealing with these requests, because we've spoken on the show several times over the last few months about just how difficult it is to work in education right now, uh, certainly in the classroom, but even above and beyond the classroom, administrators and even district folks. And this is just another thing that like could drive people out because why even bother? Why even deal with this? This one is particularly tricky because we are talking about transparency here and it's hard to argue against that, right? Like we, you know, what are you gonna do? Like make it harder to file Freedom of Information Act requests because you know they're coming in with like BS motives. Like you don't wanna make it harder to file these because a lot of times you need that for like just causes and you don't wanna make it more expensive to file these because again, a lot of times these uh, requests are for correct and just moral purposes. In this case, they're not, but in any, but like this lever, this tool here, it's, it's, we wouldn't want to restrict it. And as a classroom teacher, I like every other teacher out there, um, part of me worries about my name popping up somewhere. I mean, my name actually has popped up plenty of times already, uh, thanks to my involvement in the ethnic studies curriculum in, in California. But just like most teachers just want to do the best they can for their students. And they don't want to deal with like, crazy folks, trolls online and, and folks slamming them on Facebook and this and that, whatever. And some of these requests are asking for teacher names and what buildings they work in. That's scary stuff. And we just spent well over a year in, in some school districts, it was like a full year of online learning, a full remote learning. And to claim that parents need transparency to make that claim that they don't know what's being taught in these schools, that secrets are being held and we gotta uncover it. After you just had unprecedented access to your child's teacher and their lessons and all that they've done over the course of this pandemic, like, un like you could literally sit there with your child and hear everything the teacher was saying and everything the teacher was doing for all those months and nothing came up, nothing came up that showed any like remarkably scandalous stuff that these teachers are trying to indoctrinate our students with. It just didn't happen. So miss me with the, we need transparency because you've had so much transparency for so long. We haven't found anything. And the folks behind this know that there's nothing there. There's nothing sinister there. Yes, there are teachers in schools and in districts and states that are rightfully helping students interrogate race and racism and it's the history of it in the United States and rightfully helping students understand gender uh, differences and, and understand things that help create and hopefully help lead us towards a more humanizing world where we see each other as equals. Yes, that's happening, of course. So the argument that like we need these requests to uncover it is just silly to me. And to your point, yes, this isn't so much about proving that CRT isn't happening. The conversation needs to be about the importance of things like CRT. Just That's just one example. Now, most districts and most school sites and most states, I imagine, 
have like lists of approved resources. They have their frameworks. They have their standards. All that stuff is already public. If anybody wanted to know, for example, what I'm teaching in my classroom, like the, the California frameworks or what I'm following, the uh, California state standards or, or what guide uh, or what guide that and any book, any stuff that's being used in my classroom is, is on some list already of uh, approved approved documents and approved um, resources. So again, like this isn't really about people not actually knowing what's happening in the classroom. This is about intimidation. This is about tearing apart our school systems as they exist now, bombarding them with requests that are too expensive to to monitor, to handle, that take too much person power to handle. And it's just meant to clog up the system. And it's another, I guess, I mean, I'll use the word attack. I don't like using like, you know, aggressive warlike language around this because it, it's we're talking about schools here at the end of the day we're talking about students in class and trying to build a better society but yes this is an attack on public schools and another another approach towards trying to dismantle public education as we know it it's really unfortunate it's really shameful it's scary and it's kind of funny also it's just like funny the notion that someone's going to file this 41 page request and think they're going to have like a gotcha moment like i gotcha they're teaching about rosa parks and and they were doing that outside of black history month what were they even like come on man just come on yeah no i'm i'm so glad you said that manuel because i think the the there's kind of two fronts uh in some ways to to what the consequence of these frivolous uh, Freedom of Information Act requests are, right? There's the burying the district in paperwork part of it, right? Which is expensive, which is, uh, you know, likely to embarrass the district in one form or another, right? So it's, oh, you took two years to fulfill it. Or, oh, you, you know, you didn't actually give us everything. You only give us 50,000 documents, not 55,000 documents. What are you trying to hide, right? Um, so there's just the, like, inundate make it expensive and embarrass the district side of things. But then there's also just the chilling effect uh, that this has, right? And I think that it, that may actually be even more so uh, than the sort of bury them in paperwork and raise For the sure. cost side of things. For sure. Might be the real thing they're after, right? Because the reality is, as you said, first of all, school is more transparent today than it's ever been historically. I don't know what the reality is in most like small rural districts in Minnesota. A few of them were referenced in this article. I don't know what kind of infrastructure, you know, a district with 600 total kids has in terms of like a online learning management system, for example, right? But in larger districts, which is where most of the kids are in every state of the in the country, right? It's urban and suburban school districts. Um, they have infrastructure, you know, you can, I can be here in California. I can log in and see how a family member is doing in school anywhere in the country, as long as I have the, you know, the password, right? And I can see, here's what the assignments are that the teacher has submitted. Here's the score, you know, and I could certainly be enabled with at least a high level of understanding of like, what's the content in this course. And I can get in touch with the teacher through the learning management system or send an email, you know, easily, right? This is radically more transparent than school was, say, you know, 20, 30 years ago or when we were in, you know, elementary school and you literally physically had to go to the school to ask what was happening, right? And you got just a paper report card in the mail with some numbers on it, you know, every couple months, right? So I'm not saying education is perfect. I don't want to, uh, you know, 
throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, and like get rid of these transparency laws. But I think we also have to go on the offensive against these uh, just very frivolous, right-wing, racist, white supremacist attacks against the institution of public school. And so I think we have to be out front saying like, these things are frivolous. They are trying to make it expensive and you know raise costs and undermine the ability of public schools to function and have trust in the community. Here's what we are doing. Here's our, you know our curriculum. We stand by you know the teaching of race and social emotional learning and an honest U.S. history because not to do so is a form of violent psychological warfare against our children and we will not do that as ethical educators and we need to be like not timid about this these people have harm <laughs> behind their intent here okay there's nothing ambiguous about this we need to take it seriously and go on the offensive against these kinds of attacks and i'm, I'm frustrated that it doesn't feel to me like we're like we're seeing that we're not really seeing that. And part of it is because we're we're just trying to survive right now as like as educators in the system right now. Like there's so much that educators are having to focus on and having to do to help support students through this pandemic and through all the calamity around the world that like these other battles, man, it's just it's quite difficult. And there simply isn't that like big money leftist like organizing astroturfing to like do something that's equivalent from from another perspective like that exists on the right because there's a lot of um a lot of promise there politically like this is you know this is stuff that we saw what impact it had on the election in virginia like this is stuff that gets voters out there this is stuff that gets people fired up and like for that reason there's going to be a lot of investment in this by political operatives on the right on the left i think not not so much and because of that it's just like I'm doing what I can in my classroom. I'm doing what I can in my school. I think most educators will, will say similar. And it's difficult to also also be involved in this, whatever is going on nationally, uh, as, as folks try to get these records and try to get these laws passed and try to put these schools and teachers on blast and all that stuff. Like, it's just so much to deal with. And it's just, again, it's shameful and it's highly unfortunate. And we'll, I mean, we'll see, we'll see where this heads, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. My, my one uh, final question for you, Manuel, before we move to our next story here yep. is, uh, did you get your um, Soros check in the mail yet? Uh, Not yet. And I keep checking because then I'm like, maybe it's, you know, direct deposit and I keep looking. I don't I don't I don't see it. So, yeah, that's crazy because I didn't I didn't get mine either, man. I thought we were on the payroll crisis actors and whatnot. Right. <laughs> yeah, man. I thought there's all this yeah. money funneling down. I thought, sheesh, yeah. man, where's my I'm money? Still at? waiting. Still waiting. Yeah. Still waiting. <laughs> All right, Jeff. We have we have somebody else on the on the roster for today, Jeff. So who do we have next for today's roll call? Well, Manuel, next up is uh, it's maybe less of a person and more of an idea. It's a conceptual roll call. Conceptual, okay. okay. Uh, and <laughs> next up on the roll call is that little voice in the back of your head, Manuel, that just just speaks ever so slightly sometimes. That that little voice in the back of your head. How'd you know about that little voice, Jeff? You've been talking to that little voice? <laughs> Get out of my head, Jeff. Get out of my head. Uh, yes, um, I have been talking with that little voice. Um, and that little voice has let me know that in this particular case, its name is uh, Implicit Bias, man, uh -huh. uh, with, with a tinge of racism uh, and, and perhaps other isms. 
Um, so, uh, so yeah, we're gonna we're gonna jump into this man. Well, this is a fascinating story that's coming to us out of LA School Report. Um, so let's let's dig into it here. Um, the story is by Kevin Mankin, and uh, it is covering a study by Vanderbilt professor Jason Grissom and University of Virginia professor Brendan Bartonen, I hope I pronounced that correctly, focusing on teacher evaluation in the state of Tennessee. Now, this study was published in December by the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management, and it found that bias has contributed to lower evaluation scores for thousands of teachers across the state of Tennessee, even when controlling for differences in professional qualification and student testing performance. The study found that male and African-American teachers were rated lower than their female and white colleagues. So the study's very comprehensive, lots of statistics, but in a nutshell, it showed significant gender bias with women being evaluated more favorably than men, as well as racial bias with white teachers being rated more favorably than their African-American colleagues. Um, as a way of demonstrating the effects of these gaps, the researchers theoretically credited African-American and male teachers with the points that they evidently lost due to bias during classroom observations. Ultimately, 9% of all male teachers would have ascended to the next threshold on the five-point measurement scale that the state uses, including one-third of all males rated at level one and nearly one-quarter of males rated at level two. Said the co-author Grissom, the difference between a level one and a level two score is very likely the difference between you getting to come back to your school next year or not. The difference between level two and level three might be the difference between you being on probationary or non-probationary status. So the magnitude is large in that sense. Now, it is important to note that Tennessee was chosen as a site uh, for this study, partially because they first rolled out their teacher evaluation system in 2011 um, as an early recipient of the Obama and Arne Duncan era Race to the Top grant. Uh, now, folks might remember that uh, that program incentivized states to institute teacher evaluation systems that considered student test data as part of a teacher's evaluation and coerced states into lifting caps on charter school expansion. So, uh, Manuel, I thought this was a fascinating study, fascinating article. Um, it is, uh, you know, it raises like both some really interesting questions and also lots of slippery slopes potentially to go down. So uh, I'm very curious to get your thoughts about this. Yeah, Jeff. Well, as you know, we are a video platform, but also audio uh, podcast platform as well for this show. And, you know, the podcast listeners maybe perhaps have never looked at the video and maybe somebody will right now be learning for the first time that Jeff, you and I are both black males. Hope we didn't lose. You don't say. Hope, hope we didn't lose any any listeners in that. Um, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Shocker. And, shocker. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, for this story, obviously, I'm thinking about myself and my evaluations that I've had and what role implicit bias might, may have played. And ever since my first year in the classroom, it was clear and obvious to me 
and so many others have said it uh, over the years as well. It's so, but it was so obvious to me that oftentimes black males get looked at and positioned as sort of the, the more disciplined classroom management types, the ones that can handle some of the more, or quote unquote, handle some of the more uh, challenging students. And I remember some of the first like feedback I was getting from my administrators during my first year were about how well I was handling my classes considering the kids that I had in there. Uh, one administrator in particular said like, wow, you're doing really great in that in period, I think it was period three or something, especially considering how many gang members are in there. Yes, that's that's exactly what the uh, administrator said. So uh, I bring that all up to say that um, in this article, when they were diving into like, what are some possible ex like explanations for why black male teachers particularly were rated lower, even though they, they you know, tried to um, control for all these uh, variations between different classes and different schools. They said at the end of the day, like it tends to be that the uh, male teachers in general and black male teachers specifically tend to have uh, classes that are more specifically um, filled with students who perhaps were more challenging the year before, more challenging for other teachers, and that that could very well play a role in what the administrator observes when they walk in there. So even though they tried to, you know, factor all that stuff out, it's still, it's still there and it's still um, it still plays a role, but then so does the general implicit bias. Going back to the the roll call, it, it still plays. You know, the implicit bias still obviously plays a, a general role here, and this shows a lot of things. For one, it shows we talked about a few episodes ago, like how difficult teacher evaluations are, especially if they are influenced by that sort of like, you know, inner feeling that an administrator gets when they walk into a room, that sort of just sense of like, mm, yeah, just like their own like reading of the room, apart from any kind of diagnostic tool that they have to, for the actual evaluation. Um, of course, implicit bias is going to so uh, seek, uh, seep in there. We're talking about a school system that has historically historically marginalized uh, black students in particular, black male students um, and you know black uh, female students for sure. And there's no reason to think that that wouldn't also creep up into like evaluations of staff within the school system. Uh, this study did point out that this is worse in, in areas where there are fewer black teachers. So like if you're that one or two uh, black teachers at that school site, like that, that gap is even worse versus folks who are at school sites that have a lot more black teachers. So I think that all has a lot to, it shows a lot about how the system, generally speaking, views and positions black folks within the education system. So it's not just our students who are feeling the effects of, of being counted out or having lower expectations placed on them and being viewed as like not quote unquote good students. Uh, that extends to staff as well, to teachers as well in some kind of way. And this study points out that in, in many ways, like we're talking about the difference between being a level one and a level two, which might be the difference between you even having a job the next year versus you being booted out. That's, that's, that's a big difference. And we're talking folks who ostensibly enter the profession to do their best to help students out. And a lot of times I know in my own personal case, I've always been the one who like voluntarily took on the most challenging students because I felt like they weren't being served um, necessarily in other classrooms. So I wanted that challenge. And I can only assume some of these teachers who were rated lower are teachers who also wanted that challenge. And of course, research shows that that's one cause of burnout amongst teachers of color is the fact that they go in with such passion for serving their own community. And a lot of times they get burnt out in these different ways. And this is just one example of how that comes back to, to bite us in the booty when we try to do hard and go above and beyond and get that low score as a result. So yeah, I don't know. What are your thoughts, yeah. Jeff? Yeah, I so I, I think what you're naming here around the issues with uh, 
teachers of color. So this study was just looking at black versus white teachers, right. so not necessarily other groups. But um, it is true that black teachers tend to be more concentrated in schools that are serving uh, communities that are more historically underserved, communities where the needs are, are more acute in terms of service from the school site, communities that have frankly been grappling with oppression, race and class-based oppression, uh, oppression for much, you know, for decades, generations, right? Um, and that has a huge impact on a person's ability to be, you know, sort of quote-unquote effective in the eyes of an evaluation system. Um, and the, the study authors did speak to that, right? So that, that very much resonated with me, and I, I have to believe and imagine that that is at least a significant factor in this equation. Part of what was most interesting to me about this study, Manuel, is the intersection of race and gender. So the article has a graph showing uh, essentially the ranking of like which demographic groups, you know, were sort of highest ranked and which were lowest ranked, right? And it was white women, then black women, then white men, then black men, okay? Um, so that I thought was interesting, Manuel, because it did make me wonder you know, are there some, like, what's behind the gender bias aspect of this, right? And are there potentially some aspects of what uh, the teaching profession is that we associate more with, you know, sort of traditional uh, female or feminine gender roles that, um, that men may not express in doing the work, things like nurturing, things like uh, expression of emotions, you know, some of those sorts of things. Uh, and does that impact a person's, uh, you know, albeit subjective assessment of the quality of instruction that they're seeing? Right. I think we've all had, you know, experiences with a great teacher who was just like extremely sort of motherly. Right. For lack of a better term. Right. And do on some level, do we just have a hard time seeing a man playing that role? Right. Um, so I don't have any data. Like, I, let's just be clear. I'm speculating here. <laughs> But I wonder if there's something going on there, right? Because it, it was interesting to me that, you know, that rank order, right? White women, black women, then white men, then black men. So it seems like clearly there's some racial bias that the authors of the study are accounting for. But that, you know, the ranking of black women above white men made me think, huh, that's interesting because we don't necessarily always see that type of a pattern in things where there is some racial bias at play. And I wonder if it gets down to some of our sort of internalized notions of what we expect uh, a teacher to be and how we expect a teacher to sort of emote or demonstrate um, with their class and the gendered nature of that expectation. And if that's at, if that's at play here, I don't know what you think about that. Um, possibly, possibly. I mean, I think the study did mention that it could also be about the sorts of classes that male teachers more often teach versus uh, women teachers. I think like CTE classes, I think it said something about, you know, just tech classes, things like that, which might be a little more, uh, I think, I don't remember the exact phrase that was used, but it said something about classes that generally speaking, get lower ratings, no matter who's teaching it in terms of on their evaluations. Yeah, but yeah, yeah I'm, I'm sure that's, I'm sure that has, I'm sure the, the historic gender roles that um, are, put upon teachers and the teaching profession, uh, I'm sure that has 
something to do with it. Yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there's something there. And for folks listening or watching, scroll below this video or this audio and we'll have the link to the story right there. And you could read the study for yourself or read the story about the study and see what your thoughts are about, oh yeah, about these evaluations and the different forms of bias that have been popping up. So read through that and let us know your thoughts. But that about does it for today's Do Now. Up next will be our seminar with our super dope guest, Liz Kleinrock. Stay tuned. Hey folks, thanks so much for tuning in to All The Above. We really appreciate you. And as you know, All The Above is a small operation. It's just me and just Manuel, that's it. We have no sponsorships, which means we are totally dependent on our amazing audience to help support the show. So here's what you can do. Go to our website, which is aotashow.com support. That's aotashow.com support. There you can find links to everything you can do to support the show. You find all the links to every platform that we're on where you can like, subscribe, follow, make sure you share our show with your whole network. Also, you can donate there. We are on Venmo, we're on Cash App, and most importantly, you can find the link to our Anchor page where you can become a monthly patron. Even a small donation once a month will make a huge difference in helping us continue to produce the show. Lastly, you can find there the link to get your flyest, best, latest, all the above show merch. Okay, all you gotta do is go to aotashow.com support. Thanks, enjoy the rest of the show. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. We are thrilled and excited to have you here with us today. And we have a fantastic guest who is joining us uh, all the way from the other side of the country in Washington, D.C. Uh, it is none other than Liz Kleinrock. Uh, welcome, Liz, to All the Above. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here today. Yeah, well, the excitement is mutual. And folks, let me tell you a little bit more uh, about Liz. Uh, Liz Kleinrock is an anti-bias and anti-racist educator of both children and adults and creates curriculum for K-12 students specializing in designing inquiry-based units of study. In addition to her work as a classroom teacher, Liz also works with schools and companies to facilitate learning for adults that supports anti-bias and anti-racist practices. In 2018, Liz received the Teaching Tolerance Award for Excellence in Teaching, and in 2019, delivered her TED Talk, How to Teach Kids to Talk About Taboo Topics, which has received to date over 2 million views. In the spring of 2021, Liz released her first book, Start Here, Start Now, a guide to anti-bias and anti-racist work in your school community with Heinemann Publishing and is excited to announce the publication of two upcoming picture books with HarperCollins. She currently teaches and resides in Washington, D.C. with her partner and two wonderful bunnies. Uh, once again, welcome, Liz, and I'm gonna kick it over to Manuel for our first question. Yeah, Liz Kleinrock in the building. Thank you so much for joining us here on All of the Above. And actually, shout out to shout out to Heinemann because we're gonna, we wanna ask you about your book, and I'm realizing that we recently had Lorena Herman on the show and her book, Texture Teaching, was through Heinemann. And uh, we also had Carla Espana and Luz uh, Yadira Herrera, whose book, 
in Comunidad was also through Heinemann. And I think we've had a few Heinemann fellows in the past. Min Jong Pei comes to mind. So shout out to Heinemann. We we see you out there uh, doing dope work. So so Liz, yeah, your new book, Start Here, Start Now, A Guide to Anti-Bias, Anti-Racist Work in Your School Community. Um, you know, you start off talking about fear and how a lot of teachers have either experienced or been motivated by fear when it comes to anti-bias and anti-racist work. And we're wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about that, about the role that fear has played perhaps in our progress or lack of progress in helping students have learning experiences that allow for anti-bias, anti-racist classrooms and in, in schools. And, and what can we do perhaps on, on at scale to address the, the fear or the role that fear plays in, in all of this work? Yeah, thank you so much for that question. Um, you know, I think if you just take a look at what's happening, um, like on a very large scale across the United States, um, like the bills that are happening in Florida and in Indiana and in Texas, you know, teachers are receiving a lot of messages that they should be really afraid of talking about aspects of identity like race and gender issues like systemic racism or you know, homophobia or transphobia in their classrooms. Um, and to me, it, it makes sense. You know, there are teachers who are really afraid to lose their jobs. They're afraid of getting harassed or doxxed online that people are going to literally storm into their classrooms um, like in an angry mob. And, you know, I've shared in a lot of those experiences before. Um, perhaps less in person, but certainly a lot of it online. And it's really, really challenging because um, I think oftentimes teachers are set up for failure when we think about the individual things that teachers are asked to do in order to combat really big systemic issues. Um, so a lot of the time, the solution doesn't really seem to match what the actual problem is. Um, I think a lot about the role that school culture and leadership can play in trying to use some educators' fears and doing this work in their classrooms. Um, because while I think a lot of schools are, um, especially after like the rise in visibility of Black Lives Matter and like the spring and summer of 2020, schools have made some really big sweeping promises and gestures about what they want to try to tackle when it comes to school curriculum. Um, but a lot of the places that I facilitate or consult for, I think, are so eager to get into anti-racist curriculum or like classroom teaching practices, but are not really addressing the culture of the school when it comes to things like communication and accountability and vulnerability and trust. So if you are telling teachers that they need to be completely revamping their day-to-day -day curriculum and units of study, you know, to talk about all of like these issues in classroom, but people are being shamed or made examples of, or the administration or leadership doesn't support teachers when parents or community members lash out in really negative ways, then it's not really supporting teachers, um, I think, when it comes to long-term in this work and ultimately puts pressure on teachers to do a certain thing, but without giving them that support. Um, and on the other hand, I think that looking back at the history of all the things that have happened in the United States when it comes to the marginalization of you know, certain groups of people, um, there's a lot of fear that we're going to end up reverting back to the same old patterns and behaviors because people aren't educated to know better. You know, it's really hard to change things if you're not aware of what's happened in the past. So I think, you know, fear can be a motivating factor in, in some ways, but it's also something that is holding us back that I think, you know, really needs to be addressed as an underlying issue. Yeah. 
Uh, definitely appreciate that. And um, Liz, I, I can imagine for some of our viewers, they, they might uh, see you and say, oh, I, I recognize her. I've seen her before. And uh, if that's the case, it is probably from uh, your, your TED Talk um, in 2019, which uh, has, I think, over 2.2 million views now. Um, and the TED Talk was titled, How to Teach Kids About Taboo Topics. Um, and I want to ask you about something you said uh, in that talk that really uh, stood out to me, um, and that is uh, teaching kids about equity in schools is not teaching them what to think. It is about giving them the tools, strategies, language, and opportunities to practice how to think. Um, and I think as a, as a former social studies teacher, uh, that, that very much just resonated with my uh, kind of soul and spirit as an educator. But also, I think especially in this kind of charged political moment um, we are living through now, I wonder if you can share some insight in, into how you apply that to your practice, particularly around issues where there kind of is a, a sort of moral right answer, right? So if we're talking about something like slavery or, you know, we're talking about issues where uh, maybe the, the kind of morality is more clear that there is a, a, you know, a sort of right and wrong perspective, how do you still apply that, um, that kind of lens to, uh, to your teaching and your practice? Thank you. That's such a great question. And also in my family, we joke that a million of those views were my mother. So I'm not actually sure how many people actually watched it. Uh, well, shout, um, shout out to mom. Uh, that's She's doing her part. Oh, she is. She could be my publicist for sure. Um, it's such a great question. And I know that's often a fear and like a reality for many teachers um, that when we look at really like right wing, like conservative media targeting teachers and schools that are trying to engage in this work, um, oftentimes the accusation is you're indoctrinating students, you know, like you are just, you know, resorting to the trope that kids are just empty vessels that need to be filled up and you are just putting all of your biases, your political agenda onto children. And unfortunately, I'm sure there are some teachers out there who are doing that um, across the political spectrum. Um, but in my classroom, in order to avoid that, um, I try to teach from an inquiry-based perspective whenever possible. And for folks who are less familiar with inquiry, um, that means that I might come in to a unit or a lesson, like knowing what the overall topic or theme is going to be, but spend a lot of time talking to students about what are their biases or what do they think that what do they think they know about a particular topic or subject before we actually dig into it. And then we generate questions based on their prior knowledge or understanding or even misunderstanding. So that way, if someone were to come into my classroom and say, you know, why are you talking about you know, segregation or like queer rights with your kids, I can point to the questions that they have generated themselves and remind them that it's actually more of my role to act as a facilitator in this situation rather than the person who's just going to deliver knowledge to all children. Um, but about your question, um, you know, when there seems to be a, a morally right or wrong answer, what does that look like? Um, I personally think it's okay to give kids the space and create the space for them to make mistakes, to talk about like all of their prior understandings or assumptions about something um, and really give them the opportunity to facilitate and dialogue across lines of difference. Because I do think that is a skill that is kind of being ignored and suppressed in a lot of places. Um, like for example, um, last year during Derek Chauvin's trial, 
um, knowing that I had a lot of students who had been impacted by police in really negative ways, and that I also had students in class who had police officers as family members or kids who, you know, say they want to be police officers when they grow up. You know, how do we have that sort of balanced discussion when it's clear that there are there's enormous amount of racism into the way that our criminal justice system works? Um, and so in that case, I gave my students a number of different prompts um, and through this platform called Pear Deck, which I really love, allows students to like be interactive um, through uh, slides that are shared, um, allow them to place dots on a spectrum of agree to disagree. And then we opened it up for discussion of where did you put your dot and why? And so that allowed kids to be able to talk and articulate like their own feelings and, you know, their own experiences of why they felt a certain way and for other students to listen to them openly and authentically. Um, and then we have conversations at the end of, hey, do you now, are you now leaving this lesson or a conversation feeling or thinking differently than you did when you entered it? I also think that we have to do a lot of foundational work in giving kids like the context and language for a lot of, um, you know, the topics around oppression and discrimination. Um, like right now, like we are seeing some really inappropriate comparisons between people who have to wear masks in public places with, you know, marginalized people like Jewish people, Romani people, disabled folks, queer folks during the Holocaust and how incredibly offensive that is. So clearly some folks have never really been educated about the Holocaust and what oppression actually is and what that looks like and feels like. And I think with especially young students, there are really important moments where they can develop those foundational understandings. So they're actually able to you know, dialogue with one another when it's a, a moral issue of injustice. Wonderful, wonderful. And, you know, on our show at the end, we have a segment that we call Class Dismissed. And that's where we shout out folks doing wonderful things in the world of education. And I don't know if Jeff remembers, but one of the first episodes, either episode one or two, maybe episode three, you were actually the topic of our Class Dismissed because at that time, oh my um, gosh. yeah, there was a big, you know, viral story of you teaching uh, young children about consent. And we just thought oh, yeah. it was so dope <laughs> and so amazing how you were able to, you know, teach these little kiddos about consent without it being, you know, uh, sexually inappropriate or whatever for young children. And Jeff, do you remember that? You know, it's so funny, Manuel, because I remember the story, but I didn't put two and two together that that was, uh, yeah, that man. That was Liz, that was the teacher. So uh, thanks thanks for digging through the crates on that one, Manuel. <laughs> no, I remember. Like, no, I remember because every yeah. time I've seen uh, her name since then, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's her. Uh, but in any case, I bring that up because, you know, I, I teach mostly 11th graders and 12th graders and teaching them about consent or teaching them about uh, slavery, sexism, genocide, oppression, a lot of these really big, um, serious topics. I, most people, even today, even when a lot of these topics are um, being banned left and right in different states, um, a lot of people agree that like older students, 11th and 12th graders in particular, um, that they should learn a bit about that and that they can, quote unquote, handle those conversations. But a lot of folks think that the the younger students aren't ready for that or shouldn't really um, be exposed to those topics and those themes at, at a young age. So, you know, as somebody who at least um, to, to my knowledge came across my radar as somebody who's teaching young kids about a very serious topic, um, what are your thoughts about or how do you respond to people who say like, yeah, but you know, some kid, these kids, they're just, they're just too young to learn about racism. They're too young to learn about uh, genocide. What is your reaction or response to those folks? 
so many things, some that I will censor because this is a <laughs> podcast. Um, you know, I'm, I'm far from the first person to say that if, for example, if students of color are, are young enough to experience racism, then I think all students, regardless of their age or identity, are young enough to be able to talk about it and to make sure that they're also not contributing to it as well. Um, I think that you can't fix things that you can't name. And it's really difficult to be able to talk about a lot of the issues that, you know, we we discuss, like wanting our, our children to grow up in a world better than the one that we're in. Well, like, how do we expect kids to actually be able to do that unless they know what's happening in the world and the things that have happened before. Um, I could also cite a number of different child development studies that show like very concrete pieces of data about the ages children are when they begin to notice physical differences, when they begin to make social decisions based on those differences. Like by kindergarten, um, many students are actually showing the exact same racial biases that are mirrored with many adults. Um, feel free to Google it. I promise I'm not making it up. Um, and truly when I hear adults say that kids are too young or they're not, you know, they're not ready, they're not comfortable. What I'm really hearing is the adult saying something about themselves, not about kids. Um, my experience with working with children, and now this is my 12th year working in schools, is that kids get really, really pissed when you tell them that they are not capable of doing something or that they need to be you know, protected in a certain way from, from like particular subjects or learning about people who are you know, similar or different from them. Um, I do think that um, regardless of the topic, there's gonna be an access point for anybody. And with little kids, part of why I love teaching is because it's, it's like constant problem solving of trying to figure out what is the access point? Like, what can I talk about in order to have kids more closely relate to the topic at hand to form those personal connections and for them to get, you know, personally invested as well. Um, the example that I gave in the TED talk is like, I'm not, I'm not going to talk about like mass incarceration and like racism and like the justice system with like first graders, but what are like those foundational understandings that need to be in place in order for kids to later have a conversation about, you know, racism and the justice system in the United States. And for me, that starts with understanding that when somebody does something, there could be a, a punishment or there could be a consequence. And those two things are not the same. And we need to be able to understand that before we take a look about how people are sent to prison in the United States. And we also need to understand the difference between something being fair and something being equal. Um, and that's an understanding that I think any five or six-year-olds can understand. And, you know, if you gave me any sort of topic, I promise you I could probably find some sort of access point for kids. Even last week in a PD for my school, um, our facilitator asked us to think about how you would teach a lesson about the insurrection on January 6th from last year. And I did not personally find it that difficult to find an, find an access point of like where to start that conversation with little kids. But I do think that a lot of it also comes from practice too, being comfortable with improvising and knowing that a perfectly acceptable response to a child of any age is, I actually have no idea what the answer to that question is. Let's figure it out together. Not to feel that pressure that you have to be able to predict everything or to be able to respond to every single thing that a kid says. Yeah, I, I very much appreciate that point. And uh, you're kind of take, taking me back to my own journey as an educator when I realized it was okay to not to not have the answer to every question. 
and how liberating uh, actually it was to, to kind of arrive at that point. Um, so I guess kind of an extension almost of the, of the previous question is we are living now through this, uh, this era of sort of uh, right-wing extremism and kind of backlash against uh, you know, the, the efforts at progress that have been made towards uh, creating culturally responsive, uh, humanizing uh, school environments and classroom environments with these you know, bans on the 1619 Project or critical race theory. Uh, we've even you know, got Florida going as far as, uh, as outlawing uh, making white students uh, feel discomfort in the classroom uh, in discussions about you know, issues of race or identity. Um, so I'm curious, as, as someone with your kind of wealth of, uh, of expertise and experience on these matters, um, what you think the impact of these kinds of, of laws uh, is or is going to be, and also how you think educators should respond? No, it's, it's so hard because I feel like if I take a step back and look at like the big macro picture, what I see in, from all of these states is really politicians trying to dismantle public education. Like we are going to see mass exodus of teachers. We're already seeing that because of pandemic burnout. Um, I heard about the law in Indiana this week that teachers are going to be required to submit like a year's worth of lesson plans up front. First of all, no one does that. And who's going to read all of those too? Like it makes no sense. Um, but all of these messages that this type of, you know, teaching and education is not only not welcomed, but is going to make your life a whole lot harder too, if you decide that this is the hill that you're going to die on. Um, it's funny though, because I talked to some of my students, my fourth graders um, on Friday this past week, um, since we're talking about Black History Month, and we were looking at some quotes from Carter G. Woodson, um, who like, was the founder of Negro History Week. And one of his quotes talked about how Black history is so often like erased and ignored in, in textbooks and in classrooms, and that he you know, said that quote almost 100 years ago, and that it's still so true to this day. And I was talking to my students about all of these bans on different topics. And then, of course, because they're children and they're curious, their question is, why? Like, why would any state or district want to ban this history? Um, and when I talked specifically about the comfort of white children, my white students were so angry, um, which was really remarkable to see. Um, one of them even said, I feel insulted as like a white kid because like who, who are these people to say that I can't handle this or that I shouldn't know about this or I don't want to know about this? Um, and he was echoed by a number of other white students who were equally as irate about it and really just kept repeating, how are we supposed to be able to avoid certain problems and fix things if we don't have any idea about what's happened before? Um, I'm truly not sure what the consequences of these laws will be. And unfortunately, I wish I had like more like a, a more hopeful prediction, um, but being here in DC and just seeing how successful Youngkin was in his bid for the governorship in Virginia. Um, and clearly the Republican party has seen a lot of success in being able to elect their candidates based on this type of fear. I think that this is gonna be far from over. Unfortunately, I think it's gonna get a lot worse before it gets better. Yeah. Sorry, that's really depressing. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, we wish uh, you had the answer. We were really hoping for like the answer to all this because yes, <laughs> we too are depressed and we too are worried about where this is all gonna end up. But you know, we're in this together and one way or another, we are gonna do right by our, our students and hopefully, hopefully we'll get through this and um, have that humanizing school experience or school space environment for, for all kids down the line. But yeah, it is some tough times ahead for sure. And, you know, going back to your book, your, um, your book, Start Here, Start Now, you share a bit about your own experience of being born in South Korea and being adopted by a white presenting Jewish family here in the United States and, and just growing up and navigating uh, the complexities of identity and identity politics here, here in the United States. And you share a bit about having to do that um, on your own at times. And we're wondering if you could talk to us about the ongoing impact that your, uh, your own journey through your own identity has had on your work today. And for schools that have are hoping to, to help students not have the same experience as yours in terms of having to navigate that on their own, like what should schools be doing to, to support students with that in, in that regard? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I think all of the intersections of my identity, um, being adopted, being East Asian, Korean, Asian American, queer, um, you know, it's quite a mouthful, but I've thought a lot about the parts of myself that, you know, were really celebrated and like valued in school compared to the parts that I was, you know, really proud of and really loved about myself. And unfortunately, there wasn't always very much overlap. I think we tend to affirm and value the parts of our students that tend to be the most privileged um, in a way that, you know, mirrors whatever a lot of people think like a model student should look like. Um, because it's the parts of myself, like being, you know, neurotypical and cisgender and like able-bodied that, you know, allowed me to, I think, have a fairly like successful experience in school growing up. Um, and oftentimes left me like really grasping for the language to describe who I was, who I am, how I was feeling, the things that I was going through, or when people, you know, made you know, not so nice comments about any part of my identity, not really knowing how to respond to that either. Um, so I think a lot about the work that I do with kids, a lot of it is just like, how do we talk about similarities and differences in a way that fosters pride in who our kids are and also helps them develop language to ask questions respectfully rather than um, jumping to very like judgmental uh, language or just making assumptions about others. Um, a few years ago, I was really lucky to actually hear Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum speak in LA and something that has always stayed with me from her talk um, was this idea of moving from representation to affirmation. Because I think if you look through like a lot of school or classroom libraries, especially these days, you might see like a more diverse representation of identity and story, but we have to think about instead how identities are being affirmed rather than just, are they there? Um, like if you have a, a ton of books on what you might think is like black history, but every single one of them is about slavery and it's about segregation and like racism, um, really things that are more of like white history than black history, then what messages are you sending to your students of all racial identities about black history and black identity? Like if there isn't that balance of, um, you know, power and beauty and culture and resistance, then you're still, you're still biased in what you're presenting to your kids. 
Um, <clears throat> so I think ultimately getting to know your students, not just the beginning of the year, because I think a lot of teachers are just really focused on community and identity in the first like couple weeks of school, but how do you revisit those themes throughout the year? How do you provide opportunities for your students to reflect on their own growth as humans? Um, and how can we really try to affirm students based on how they want to be seen rather than our assumptions of them? Yeah, I very much appreciate that um, that response, Liz. And uh, earlier this week, I was in um, in some conversation with uh, with Goldie Muhammad, who was uh, talking about her sort of. Uh, upcoming book. I hope I'm not spilling any uh, any big secrets here, uh, but it's going to be focusing on uh, joy and the cultivation of joy um, in the classroom, you know, with the lens on culturally and historically responsive education. And um, it's just such a such a critical part that I think you, you know, you named that's often missing from what we do, right? Like we, we might include the, you know, slavery and the Holocaust and things, right? Uh, the sort of uh, wrongs of history, but not include the strength, the joy, the you know the the resistance, the perseverance, uh, the culture, the genius um, of of marginalized groups, and so uh, that that really hits home for sure. Um, last uh, quick question I want to ask you, Liz, before we before we let you go uh, in preparing for the show uh, was you know looking around online for uh, for bios to use for you. And I noticed something very interesting about all of the bios of you that I could find on the internet. They all seem to end with the fact that you live uh, with two bunnies. So, uh, <laughs> you know, any, any uh, shout out you want to give to the two bunnies uh, here before we wrap? I would, but they're so mean. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> uh, okay, so I have two bunnies. Um, one, her name is Epiphany. Uh, she was actually rescued from the South LA Animal Shelter. Um, I think she's honestly just like deeply traumatized and that is why she hates people so much. Um, and then another one, Blue, who got like uh, maybe six months after her when we found out my former partner and I had adopted her um, and found that she was incredibly destructive um, in our household and having a, a partner has definitely chilled her out quite a bit. And so she has someone to hang out with, but blue and epiphany, they're super cute, but they are not as cuddly <laughs> as I would hope bunnies would be. It makes me like really mad when I see all these really cute bunny videos, like from TikTok and Instagram and stuff of people who can dress their bunnies up in costumes and their bunnies like come up on the couch and cuddle with them. And mine are just like glaring at me from the other room and run away whenever I walk oh, by. Wow. So. <laughs> Uh, well, it's good of you to include them in your, in your many bios, uh, nonetheless, um, Liz. But uh, Liz Kleinrock, um, author of the book Start Here, Start Now, um, uh, well-known uh, TED Talk speaker online. Um, thank you so much for joining us here on All the Above. Thank you so much for having me. All right, folks, that's it for today's seminar. Thanks so much for joining us. Next up is our class dismissed. Stay tuned. All right, folks, we've reached that time in our episode where we like to pause for a moment, zoom out, give some flowers and some respect and shout outs to folks doing great things in the world of education. Uh, it's our class dismissed. Manuel, who we got today? All right, Jeff. Today we have a third grader. This is super cute. Third grader, 
little kid by the name of Dana Boone out there in Florida, in Orlando, Florida. And him and his mother, uh, Charnetta Starr is her name, they took the periodic table of elements and they replaced each element with a figure in black history. And they created a periodic table of black history and each element is honoring somebody super dope in black history, past and present. And they took this to their school and now it's hanging up in his elementary school in Orlando. So if you're watching the video version of this, you could see it uh, see it right now. It's pretty dope, pretty, uh, it looks really cool the way he put it together. And also obviously symbolically, it's very dope. And uh, this kid, this kid uh, Dana said, quote, I wanted to represent our black culture and I wanted to represent all the amazing people through this project. And his mother said that she's hoping that students and teachers will learn more about people who have contributed to the success success of black culture and the history and all the things that black folks have contributed to this nation. So, Jeff, um, you know, this is in in Florida. This is a, a little third grader putting up this really cool visual representation of the, the brilliance and excellence of, of black folks in the United States and I don't know how we got it up there before the uh, Stop Woke Act came out, because I'm pretty sure this is critical race theory. I'm pretty sure this uh, third grader is a cultural Marxist. But despite yes. the fact that this stuff is being banned and all that in Florida, this kid said, you know what? I'm going to put it up anyways, because I'm dope and these people are dope. So we thought it was a cool way to end Black History Month by shouting out this third grader out there in Florida. Yeah, uh, no, I, I love it, Manuel. As a former chemistry nerd myself, uh, I appreciate uh, anything carrying forth the spirit of the periodic table of the elements. But also, I was, you know, as I was looking through the picture, I was trying to zoom in and see, you know, the kind of range of figures that uh, little little Dana had included. And I was um, I was happy to see there was kind of a, you know, well, really one of my favorite things about Black History Month, Manuel, is how we get to kind of like expand our our considerations of the fullness of black people and black figures throughout history um, so you had you know scientists engineers politicians artists historical you know great orators right famous people less you know sort of famous people um, so I love the you know the kind of range of it and um, I think it's great to see uh, a young man like this experiencing, you know, both the giving of, of sort of a gift in this to his school and his classmates, but also, um, you know, the, the kind of receiving of a warm reception and, and being able to, to share that with the school. So I love it. Props to you, Dana. Um, great job. And, um, you know, here's to wonderful things to come in your educational future as well. Absolutely, for sure. All right, folks, that about does it for this episode of All of the Above. We hope you enjoyed it. And please, please, please consider giving us that five-star review and that thumbs up and, and writing a little review if you have a moment to do that because those go a long way. All right, we hope you enjoyed the episode and we will see you next week with another edition of All of the Above. Love y'all. See you next time.